Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Emily Hope. Emily Hope is an artist, researcher, and founder of the Wild Man Appreciation Society, a civil society and personal museum dedicated to the promotion and preservation of tales of the wild man. Emily was born and raised in Aurora, Ontario, and college-educated at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, British Columbia, where she earned her BFA in 2012. Emily lives in Kamloops with her husband, Corey, and their daughter, Molly, and during the week, you can find her at the Kamloops Art Gallery, where she works as the Education and Public Programs Director. Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm delighted you've come all this way in search of the wild man to, <laughs> to Newfoundland. We'll, we'll try not to disappoint you. So t- tell me a little bit about uh, what the Wild Man Appreciation Appreciation Society is. Um, so I started it in 2011 while I was still in my undergrad. And the the idea is that it, it sort of follows in the, in the footsteps of, of all of these historical um, civil societies where it's a, a bunch of people who have similar interests and they get together and they talk about the things that they enjoy. And um, in this particular case, then I, I've created a personal museum. Um, which, again, is, is a long history. Um, I was largely influenced by places like the Sir John Soane Museum in England, um, the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles, these kinds of places where an individual or a group of individuals had a particular interest. They've gathered artifacts around that interest, and they've made that uh, collection of artifacts public. Um, main difference with the Wild Man Appreciation Society is I don't have a, a permanent physical place to, to display these things. So instead, I go through the, the visual arts um, world with that and you know, apply it to, to different galleries to, to show the collection. Yeah. So what kind of things are in the collection? I have uh, giant's rings. So uh, Johan Peterson is the Icelandic giant, um, and he, he traveled with a bunch of the circuses. And one of the things that he sold when he performed were rings that fit his fingers that are mm, a little bit bigger than a toonie. Okay, yeah. So things like that. Um, 15th century German coins that feature wild men on them. Um, beer jugs, both contemporary and historical. Uh, giant mittens. Um, prints, photographs, uh, all kinds of things. Anything that features the wild man. I mean, the, I think the, the easiest way of distilling the, the idea of the wild man society is that I'm collecting evidence of humanity's long interest in this creature. So I don't care if the wild man exists. Right. In fact, I really don't want to know one way or the other. If somebody finds a Bigfoot, I don't want to hear about yeah. it. <laughs> so you're not a cryptozoologist. You're interested no. in the kind of the belief and the stories around it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which is what, uh, you know, as a folklorist, that's kind of what we're interested in. We're interested yeah. in kind of the stories and what the stories say about us more than what stories say about historical truth. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So where does the wild man come from then? I know that's a big question, but like yeah. the, the archetype of the wild man, why is that something that has persisted? That's a really good question. I mean, that's basically the root of the question, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why do we continue to tell stories about the wild man? Um, I mean, I've come down to two options. Either he exists uh, or we have a deep human need to believe that he exists. And I say he, but it's really he and she and it. Um, but it, there are theories that where it originates is in ancient pagan religion and that um, the original wild man was the original god 
and that you know we had to sacrifice things to this god to maintain human fertility to make sure that crops would grow to make sure that the cycle would continue year after year um and that that's where a lot of these pre-lenten masking traditions come from is um they would have originally been these these sacrificial rites to the god and over a long period of time they've turned into um you know these more social events mm-hmm. that you know they've they've lost a lot of their religious meaning, but they do a lot of the same things for our culture. You know, they they bring us together. They make us continue wanting to to do the things that we do day to day. They uh, keep society together. So, can you give me some examples? You know, you mentioned you know Bigfoot and that kind of thing. Those yeah. are kind of contemporary legends about wild men. Are, can you give me some examples of how the how the wild man has manifested in in the past sure um so there's the epic of gilgamesh so that that has a couple of of good wild men in it but uh enkidu would be the the main one where he's this um like kind of like a noble savage he's this Mm -hmm. beautiful wild creature who is one with the earth and he can talk to the animals and he can predict nature and he understands this earth in a way that civilized man cannot um and then civilized woman comes and finds him and corrupts him, seduces him, and then nature will have nothing to do with him. So he has to go and, and become a part of the realm. Um, and that that's a pretty standard archetype throughout the Middle Ages. Um, there's a lot of stories of the wild man being brought in and becoming a knight. And then you find him on... Um, the shields of of great houses and you know becoming the the corbel bracket on on homes um there's you know there there are so many variations on on the wild man i mean Santa Claus is a wild man. Yeah, that's, I was going to ask you about Santa Claus. We, yeah. we, we had Santa Claus uh, on the show. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we have this idea, I think, that you know, is a very modern idea that Santa Claus is, is a somewhat genteel, civilized uh, figure. But yeah. he, he is, uh, you know, in many dis- depictions, you know, covered in fur and sooty and dirty, exactly. you know, and he yeah. comes from out of that same tradition. Yeah. yeah, well, and the names of his reindeer are indications of him coming from that tradition, right? Like Donder and Blitzen, that's thunder and lightning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those are a lot of people say, you know, those are really clear indications that this is the original pagan god. He has control over thunder and lightning. Um, when we look at the way that these things have, have come through, like there's uh, Black Peter. Yes. And, um, you know, there's a significant controversy around Black Peter in recent times because it's really not okay to go in blackface. But if you take that way back to pagan religion, being covered in soot or being covered in something black was a symbol of your great strength as a god mm-hmm. and so that's i mean that's where these things come from and so the, the the soot on on santa claus again that's that's hearkening back to this time when um likely shamans would have covered themselves in soot from the fire yeah. to, to get this kind of power and we, we had a tradition here in in certain locations in, in newfoundland of what were called darbies and so a, a, that's a good newfoundland word darby is um <clears throat> has two meanings in Newfoundland English. Uh, a Darby can be sort of a, a supernatural creature, like a almost like a boogeyman. You know, like mm. be good or the Darbies will come and get you. Or sometimes they're called they're called boo Darbies. But a Darby uh, is also a figure that um, that that uh, or a 
a character, I guess, that people would take on at the end of the year, and they would blacken their faces. Hmm. So it's like mummering, but you would uh, you would take a cork and burn it in the wood stove, and then use the burnt cork to to paint your face. Hmm. And you see that uh, in some English traditions. Some mm-hmm. there's some Morris dancing traditions where there's kind of the blackened face, and some mummering traditions as well where there's the blackened face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we've kind of moved away from that. Uh, yeah, and rightly yeah. so, right? You can't you can't ignore the rest of what's going on in your culture just because it has a strong historical precedent. Like yeah. it's, it is no longer okay to do that. But I think it's interesting to understand where it's coming from and yeah. and what the um, symbolism is. You you talked about Black Peter, which is this tradition in um, in Dutch Christmas traditions, Dutch yeah. and Belgian uh, Christmas traditions of this black uh, man that will accompany uh, Santa Claus. And quite often in, in Christmas traditions, there's this idea of uh, punishment. You know that there is yeah. a, a feature, a character that will accompany the gift giver that will punish you if you've mm-hmm. been you've been bad. So sometimes those roles are kind of split apart. Like sometimes it's Santa, and sometimes it's Santa and a helper. Yeah. 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 And there's there's a running theory that where that comes from is that um, in about the sixth century, when Christianity started to spread across Europe, the, the main obstacle that they had was with this wild man, God, and that they could get people who believed in these religions to, to grasp onto Christianity but they couldn't get them to get rid of the pagan god because right. Christianity was this, you know, beautiful, lovely religion. Um, and, you know, they liked a lot of things about it, but it didn't deliver the goods. It didn't make sure that the crops would grow. It didn't make sure that the women would continue to get pregnant. And their pagan god would ensure these things. Um, and so it's believed that um, Christianity took the imagery of this pagan god who was cloven-footed and had horns and had a tail and was related to agriculture, so often carried a pitchfork. You may see where I'm going with this. (laughs) And they used this imagery to um, personify the devil, who until this point had just been uh, imagined as a falling angel. Mm. Um, And so, you know, from this point on, the devil has this this personage of of being, um, you know, kind of a goat-like creature and they also did things like made this goat-like creature go around chained to saint nicholas and it's your god is the devil and we're going to chain him up and take him around with the symbol of our religion and use him as a threat to children if you're if you're not good if you can't recite you know these biblical passages when i ask you to this guy krampus He's going to take you. He's going to put you in that basket on his back. He's going to take you back to his cave. He's going to gobble you up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, it turned somebody else's God into a threat. We, we have this amazing tradition that exists here in this province um, on Twelfth Night, mm-hmm. uh, on, the last day of, uh, on the last day of Christmas, the Feast of the Epiphany in Labrador called Naliuk uh, Night. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is a, uh, an amazing uh, Labrador tradition. Um, of these uh, very frightening, hairy men that will come in off the ice and terrify the children on the Feast of the Epiphany. And it, it is kind of this interesting blending of Inuit tradition and, and Moravian tradition from the, from the Moravian Church, which was very uh, popular in, in northern Labrador. Um, and so you, we do see some of these European. There, there was a tradition in Nova Scotia of uh, Belschnickling, which yeah. is this German tradition, again, of these hairy creatures with chains that would come in. And um, in Labrador, 
<clears throat> there is a there is a ritual that's enacted where the the children have to uh, protest that they have been good. There's a little song that they have to <laughs> sing in an octet that that says, you know, oh, we've been good, and we get a we get a present from these uh, from these men. Um, and and so it is this interesting blending of these kind of these old, uh, obviously old uh, uh, Labrador Inuit traditions with kind of German Moravian traditions, and and kind of this uh, blending together of uh, the Feast of the Epiphanies when the three wise men would mm. come and and give their gifts. So there is kind of this interesting blend of that that very old, very pagan stuff, and then with yeah. this kind of Christian layer that's kind of laid over top of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to I want to know about. Romania. Okay. So tell me about how the Romanian project uh, started. Uh, I'd graduated from university and, you know, I'd spent a lot of time trying to understand the role that the wild man had in medieval societies, particularly in, in German medieval society. Um, and I was I was looking for something a little bit different. And Charles Frigere, the French photographer, had just released his his incredible book about the wild man where he'd spent a couple of years traveling around Europe photographing these incredible pre-Lenten festivals and until that point I hadn't realized that these kinds of traditions were still happening to, to this kind of regularity and so that really inspired me to find you know where where I could go and research this myself and um, so I looked through his book and I tried to find the costumes I liked the best which turned out were the Romanian ones uh, and then found out that there was an artist residency program out of Bucharest and so I contacted them and, apl- and applied to do a residency there and they they have this really great program where uh, they basically want artists who are interested in Romanian culture to come and, and do some kind of a research project there so you tell them what you want to research they set up everything for you um, so I said you know I want to I want to study these pre-Lenten masking traditions and they planned a route for me throughout uh, mostly northern Romania through the province of Maramures. And they, they set up translators for me and figured out which towns had these, these various kinds of um, either parades or house visiting traditions um, and then planned it out. So I spent some time in Bucharest trying to get a handle on the language and figure out some some of what was going on with with the museums um and then traveled up to Maramures uh spe- specifically in places like Kavnik um and uh Siget where um they have either parades or like I said these kind of house visiting traditions in in Kavnik they have something that's really similar to the mummering here uh, at least my understanding of the mummering here um, the, their character is called a brandosh, and they wear their traditional costume underneath, which is you know like the, the traditional peasant costume. So it's um, mostly white cotton shirt and pants with some elaborate embroidery around the cuffs and, and around the neck. Um, and then they around their chest they strap as many large sheep bells as they can physically bear, and. The more you have and the bigger they are, the stronger a man you are. Um, and then on their head, they wear a sheepskin mask with these large, usually red tassels, one on either side of their head, um, a long lolling tongue, which again is often red. And there's some color variations. There was some brandoche that had uh, black tassels and a black tongue, and um, some of them were pink. You know, they, they, they are some, some variations, but usually it's red. 
And for the three days of Christmas, 23rd, 24th, and 25th of December, they run up and down the main strip of, of Kavnik and go door to door. And, you know, they bang on the door and they jump around so that their bells ring. And, um, you know, they absolutely will not tell you who, who they are. Um, you're supposed to be able to guess, but they'll do everything they can to, to hide their identity. Um, they'll either talk in a really high voice or they'll make this kind of a purring noise. They kind of go... <laughs> um, and so they knock on the door and you have to let them in and then they thrash around the house and shake their bells and generally try to cause a disturbance. Um, and sometimes you'll be able to convince them to take their mask off before you've guessed their identity but typically you have to guess the identity before they'll unmask themselves and then they sit down and they have lovely homemade treats and um some of their homemade alcohol which is called palinka um and then they put the mask back on and they go to the next door um and the there's this funny saying that the the people who are not masked will will yell at the brandosh as they run past they go la buddha which roughly translates to the outhouse <laughs> um and from what i was told it it there used to be um this thing where if you refused to reveal your identity the person whose house you were at had every right to lock you in the outhouse <laughs> until you were willing to unmask yourself that's great yeah yeah, yeah. So what was your what was your first impression then when you saw these uh, these wild men parading the streets? What did you oh think? boy, I was just so excited! <laughs> like yes, look at these guys in these incredible costumes. Yeah. <laughs> um, my first interaction with the Brandosh was I, I you know I came I was staying with this woman Eliza and we were walking down and uh, we came around a corner and about six of them came out of nowhere and descended on me and started tickling me and attacking me (laughs) Um, because you know there's uh you know this real freedom that the brandos feel right they 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 no longer have to adhere to the the regular mores of society right like they're no longer the um responsible kind husband they are brandosh and they can attack and grab any woman on the street that they want to and they have all these bells and they have lots of masculinity and they are strong um and you know there's you know so there's a there's a lot of kind of wild testosterone happening um and you know i think there's also a lot of uh interesting historical pride that goes into it because they tell a story that the that the costume originates from when they were able to scare off the Tartar invasion in the 16th century, um, that you know that the whole country was being invaded and they were coming up to Kavnik, and so they went up to this high point in the city and they they cut down all the logs and pulled them up, and then as the invaders were coming, they released the logs and then chased after them in these costumes with the the bells and the and that they scared the tartars away and that they left the rest of romania alone and so that this this one tiny community was able to save the the country as a whole yeah um but uh i'm i'm curious about the the masculinity aspect of mm-hmm. it is is it a is it a tradition that is primarily men then primarily are, yeah so yeah. women are allowed um and there's some some interesting stories that go along. Eliza was telling me that 
her mother ran Brandos when she was pregnant with Elisa, and that the banging of the bells on the pregnant belly is what made Elisa so smart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there are these really great stories that, that, that go along with it. Um, and so women are allowed now. Uh, I think it's only the last maybe 30 or 40 years that women are allowed to run Brandos, though it used to, used to only be men. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the mummering tradition here, uh, quite a large uh, tradition, I guess, or a, a tradition within the tradition, is cross-dressing. So, like, yeah. so that quite often you will have women who dress as men and men who dress as women or um, figures who are oddly asexual that right. are obviously male but may have breasts, you know. So so those ideas of sexuality are, are kind of important in, in, this, yeah. in this tradition in some way. Yeah. Well, I think that goes back to the fertility god again right? right like it's yeah you know you're you're really talking about being able to continue the the human the human and the the crop propagation right and so it's uh, sexuality has a lot to do with that yeah we have um, a we have a tradition here of hobby horses as yeah. well these horse head uh, figures and um, in in other parts of the world where there is a hobby horse tradition, uh, they were very clearly seen as fertility figures. And women yeah. who maybe hadn't been able to conceive that year, if they could be uh, touched or mounted by the, the hobby horse figure, then, then there was a greater likelihood that they would bear a child in That's the next great. year, you know, which is, yeah. Uh, yeah. These, are, these are, as you say, kind of very pagan sort of traditions that have yeah. persisted and persisted. Yeah. In Romania, they have the goat. It's Capriza. It's the little goat. And it's very similar to the hobby horse. It has the snocking jaw. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, covered in, in um, usually sheepskin, actually, which is funny. But, um, and, you know, they, they sing a little song about the little goat. And, and often people will have um, sprigs of... Um, cedar maybe anyway and that and they'll touch the little goat and that will give them good luck okay yeah so what do you do with all this information that you collected then what what is what is your process then as an artist what do you what do you do with all the photos and whatnot yeah so i mean when i'm when i'm taking the photos i'm doing my best to speak to the people whose photograph i'm taking and and try to understand from them why are they participating so what what do they understand about the historical significance and why does this continue to be culturally relevant for them? Um, are they doing this just because it's really fun? Um, is it because it's a good excuse to act poorly? Or, you know, is it because it, it makes them feel like they're linked to their culture in a significant way or, you know, s some other reason that I can't think of, right? Um, and then I collect all of that and try to pair them up. So, um, you know, it's a little bit difficult with Romania because I don't speak Romanian. I speak very little Romanian. And when I was there, um, for the most part, it was translating on the go, right? So I'd be with a translator and I'd be speaking to the person. They'd speak back to the translator who would give me, you know, kind of the, the quick and dirty translation. Um, you know, so part of the thing I'm still working on with that is, is getting all of those interviews properly translated so I can really pair their exact words with their photograph. So right now it's it's kind of a paraphrase, but the idea is that um, that I exhibit large scale versions of these photographs with uh, longish didactics beside them, where it'll explain what their costume is, um, the symbolism behind it, the historical reasoning behind this, um, and and then the person's description of why they continue to do it and um, maybe why they put their costume together the way that they did. Um, there's a 
a Christmas play that they do throughout Romania um, that's either called the Viflemul or the Irozi, depending on who you who you talk to. Which the Viflemul basically means the Bethlehem. Uh, Irozi uh, is the Herods, so being King Herod. Uh, and so this play tells the story of um, when King Herod was insanely jealous of the new king who had been born and ordered the murder of all child- all male children under the age of three. So they put on this play and. Um, the the main role that people try to get in this is the devil. Um, and if if it's being performed in Maraboresh, then there are usually about five devils that all have different roles. But you really want to be the devil. <laughs> and in this one little town that I was in, Preluka uh, Veke, I was talking with, it was a, a group of grade eight students who were putting this on. And so I got to speak with the two devils and they were just so excited that they got to be the devils. And it's this, um, this really elaborate process to create the costume because you want it to be very secret. You don't want anyone to know that it's you who's under that mask. You want to be able to terrify all your friends. Um, and so they worked in secret for weeks ahead of this performance. And they were telling me that when they were putting their costume together, they were really careful with the number of bells and the size of them because it would change the sound. And then learning how to jump in unison so that the sound of their bells together would would be harmonious. And, you know, d- choosing colors in a particular way so that they would look good together and, and be especially scary. <laughs> <laughs> so you've come to Newfoundland. Yeah. Very far from Romania. Why have you come here? For the mummers. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you how did you know that this was happening? Did you, you, was Christmas mummering here something that you were aware of? Yeah. yeah well, my dad moved here in 98. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Newfoundland kind of came on my radar then. Um and, you know, as soon as I started looking into uh, pre-Lent and masking traditions, Newfoundland came up immediately, Newfoundland and the, the Belschnicklers in, in Nova Scotia. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I picked up your book, which gave me the, the kind of like the ground of like, OK, so now I, now I think I, I got getting an understanding of what's going on here. Um, and I think what, what really struck me is how visually similar a lot of the costumes are to what I saw in Romania and then reading about um, especially the house visiting and then looking at Herbert Halpert's uh, typology of mummering and, mm-hmm. and understanding the the way that what happens here is really similar to what's happening in Romania and that even though nobody that I met in Romania calls what they do mummering it is, yeah. in fact, mummering. Um, and and realize, you know, because I've been trying to figure out why is it that what's happening in Newfoundland is so similar to what's happening. Like, what's the connection between Romania and Newfoundland? I couldn't <laughs> figure that out, except, like, maybe gypsies through through England. Um, but but understanding that it's part of the same mummering tradition, I think, you know, opens, opens up the door a little bit. Yeah. So what will you be doing while you're here? Um participating in as much of the Mummers Festival as I can, going to the workshops and the talks, um, trying to meet as many people as I can and talk to them about their uh, their involvement in this in these kind of traditions. Like, have they mummered before? Is this something that, that happens in their family? Or are they just picking it up now? Um, getting good photographs, hopefully gathering some costumes from folks so that I... It's one of the things that I like to do when I display the work is, is have... Um, actual costumes. I mean, if I can't gather them, then I'll make them myself. But uh, I think that 
it's a lot easier to understand what's going on when you when you can see the real thing not just a photograph of it if you can see the real costume then it it's more powerful I think so do you think you'll be doing an exhibit based on Newfoundland? yeah yeah or- well in uh in March at the Artist Trends Center um in the town where I'm from in Kamloops uh, I'll have an exhibition that shows the Romanian work and the Newfoundland work together to to sort of give a compare and contrast great well we, we'll all be looking forward to that so we're, we're coming up towards the end of our, our conversation here um, if people want to see more of the work that you do mm-hmm. or learn a bit more about the wild man appreciation society how do they mm-hmm. how do they go about doing that we're online at wildmansociety.ca okay and there's great photos <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah yeah um, and uh, where do you think you'll go next? Is there another spot in the world to where you want to go? To- oh, boy. Well, I mean, I want to go everywhere in the world. Yeah. But um, I'd like to understand Romania and Newfoundland deeply before I move on. So my next step will be to go back to Romania and then to come back here. And I'll probably kind of do do back and forth for another few years. Yeah. Um, I'd like to I'd like to feel like I understand both of these places deeply before I, I try to dig in somewhere else. You're going to have to come back for Naliuk night, uh, that, yes. you know, at uh, night. I know that the St. John's Native Friendship Center, we, we were talking with someone from there earlier, and they're, they're planning again to do another Naliuk night uh, thing here in St. John's, which is kind of a new thing for St. John's, but there's more Labrador people moving here and living here. So. Oh, that sounds incredible. So yeah, some, some, sometime on, in January, you're going to have to come for yeah. night. Yeah. Um, okay, so thank you very much for coming in and, and chatting uh, with us again. Just give us the website again. Wildmansociety.ca Emily, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett.